Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I am so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see a few guests in the chat room, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, please continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. Well, the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, is the official repository of the permanently valuable records of the United States government. NARA's vast holdings document the lives and experience of persons who interacted with the federal government. Now, the records created by post-Civil War federal agencies are perhaps some of the most important records available for the study of Black family life and genealogy. This discussion will focus on NARA's Reference Information Paper 108. This reference information paper compiled by Reginald Washington describes three post-Civil War federal agencies' records, the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company, and the Commissioners of Claims. Reginald Washington is a retired archivist, genealogy specialist with the National Archives and Records Administration. He has lectured frequently on records and research procedures at the National Archives and has served as the African-American genealogy subject area specialist at NARA. He has spoken at several national conferences 
the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, the National Genealogical Society, Federation of Genealogical Societies, the National Institute on Genealogical Research, and numerous local genealogical societies and clubs. So let me give a warm welcome to Reginald Washington. Welcome, Reginald. Oh, it's so nice to be here. I'm glad we finally got things uh, together so we could, uh, so I could be on the radio blog show. I, I really uh, enjoy speaking with the genealogists and uh, some of my old, old friends that I met when I was working at the archives. Well, you know, now that you, since you mentioned working, was working, tell us how long or how many years did you work at the National Archives and just how did you get into uh, working there? Okay. Well, I, I, I'd been there, believe it or not, I had been there 36 years. 18 of those years I worked as the African-American genealogy uh, subject specialist there. And, of course, my career, my first work experience with the National Archives was actually as a volunteer. I um, was working for a company. Uh, that company went on strike. I had finished school, and it gave me an opportunity to come in and do some of the uh, genealogical training there. So I volunteered. Um, I, would, I would come down on a Mondays, Monday mornings, and work about three hours. And, of course, um, then I would work at the Federal Records Center out at Suitland. Uh, I think it was from Tuesday to that sat to Saturday, but it, it allowed me to gain two pieces of archives experience. So uh, once I volunteered there, people uh, got to know me and knew I was looking for a job, and a job came up. And because I had those two experiences as a volunteer and as an intermittent, they hired me immediately. So that's part of the story of me getting there at the archives. Well, I can tell you, uh, volunteering is definitely a, a wonderful opportunity for individuals to learn a lot about the National Archives and to become an expert in certain, certain record groups, that's for sure. Yes. You know, I always encourage these young people. Now you find a number of people who have finished college and can't find a job. And I try to explain to him one good way of getting in is to be a volunteer. Go to an organization, whether it's history or, or any other subject area. Um, go there and volunteer. And, it, and it, you know, it sets a good example. You know, people don't often want to volunteer. So once they find that you want to volunteer, they may even create, create a job for you. And uh, I always encourage young people to do that. But uh, we, we'll, we'll have to see how that works out for them. Yes, we will. So let's begin with reference information paper 108, Black Family Research, Records of the Post-Civil War Federal Agencies at the National Archives. Now, Reg Reginald, I mean, I know that this is something that you compiled and, and worked a lot on. And so let's start off with the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Land Records. And I just want to just mention to you and to others that we have had discussions about the Freedmen Bureau records, uh, Selma Stewart, and I see Selma is in the chat room. Selma Stewart was a guest on the show speaking about the Freedmen Bureau records and Sharon Batiste Gilliam uh, was also on. And then most recently, uh, Reginald Tony Carrier and Angela Walton Raji discussed mapping the Freedmen Bureau records. Records. So take us 
take us where we need to go to understand the Freedman Bureau records and the information that you compiled in this book to help people really understand the value of these records. Okay, let, let me first talk a little bit about Reference Information Paper 108 and how it got started. Um, first of all, there was a, a congresswoman, Juanita Millender McDonald from California, and she subsequently, uh, she's deceased now, but she was receiving a lot of information from some of her constituents, and, constituents, and they were trying to uh, work with the Freedmen's Bureau records, but most of the records that were most useful, which was those um, local records created by the agency, they weren't available nationwide. So she talked with us. We, we took a group over to her office and explained that the records needed to be microfilmed. So we got her. Uh, they held hearings. Um, myself and several other colleagues from the National Archives uh, participated in the hearings, and we were able to get um, uh, an authorization of $3 million to film those, free, uh, those Freedmen Bureau um, local records. And, of course, once we got the project going, it started in 2001, and we finished in 2006, and we were able to film all of those records. And these records, you know, as I said, they, they were most, those local records are the ones that are most useful for people who are doing family research, although some of the other uh, headquarters records uh, are certainly uh, available as well. Now, the Bureau began in, in March, it was established by Congress in March of uh, 1865, and it actually did most of its work from 65 to 68, although it lasted until uh, 1872, and of course it, it was involved with almost every aspect of the uh, former slave's life. They, they, found, they created um, jobs, they... Uh, entered into labor contracts, they had marriage records, they had um, uh, applications for rations, and in those records you're going to find a lot of information about uh, former slaves, and not only during the slavery period, but also how they adapted and worked with the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, worked with the uh, Freedmen's Bureau to uh, get information and other assistance from the officials there. Okay, and so give us some examples of what you would consider the most valuable information for individuals to look for. Well, you know, most of the, you know, we talk about 40 acres and a mule, and you hear a lot about that, but what, what uh, these former slaves mostly got were labor contracts. Now, in those labor contracts, it not only gives you information about the individuals who worked on it, it gives you an idea of what it was like for a former slave as they made the transition from slavery to freedom. They were put on these jobs. Um, actually, the Bureau was started in the War Department. It's not a civilian agency. And, of course, it, the Bureau took over some of the activities that the military was doing when they were doing, doing the Civil War. And when people, when the military came into these areas, they put to work those persons, those former slaves, on on plantations to work. And, of course, the uh, Bureau would supply them with, uh, you know, food and rations and clothing. And in some cases, they would be paid for their labor. And in other cases, they would be uh, given a share of the crop. So those, those uh, 
<coughs> excuse me, those labor contracts are very important records because it provides a good deal of information about what time they worked, how long they worked, what kind of work they did, what the, what was expected of them. And uh, it, it just has a great deal of information about the individuals themselves. Sometimes it identifies some of the labor contracts were with entire families where they provide information about the individuals in those families. And keep in mind, those records were created prior to the 1870 census. And some of your listeners might, who, who have been involved with census records are well aware that the 1870 census was the first census after slavery. So a lot of these records document people prior to the 1870 census and identifies people who uh, their relationships with each other. And we know that the 1870 census doesn't give you the actual relationships. It'll tell you who's in the household, but they won't say that, well, this is my wife, this is my son, this is my daughter. So what you find in the Freedmen's Bureau records, particularly in labor contracts and other kinds of records, are uh, is information about the, the individuals in a whole an entire household. Right. And, you know, I've had an opportunity to look at the labor contracts in Mississippi, Louisiana, and South Carolina. And I noticed that in some, the states kind of varied as to how those contracts were written. Exactly. Did you see a variation? I mean, a, a big variation yourself as you went through some of the labor contracts? Yes, I saw there, there are variations. And, you know, uh, the la labor contracts going from state to state, they didn't do them always the same way. You know, uh, a lot of times, particularly how the contracts are arranged, that's what makes these records a little more difficult uh, to use because sometimes the contracts are arranged by the owner or the person who's, work, who's um, uh, uh, leasing the plantation in some ca cases. And it makes it difficult because, you know, you know how important, as an African-American genealogist, how important it is to know the name of the slave owner. But a lot of times, if you don't know the name of the slave owner and, and, the, and the contracts are arranged by a slave owner, then you have to go through all the contracts. That's why it's very important now that we see where the uh, family search and some of the other institutions are uh, starting an effort to uh, uh, digitize and index these records, how very important that is. Be and then some of them are just arranged by county. So it's very difficult because you have to just go in there and look in a certain county. If your person is from an individual county, whether it's in Mississippi or a parish or whatever, you have to go in and look at all the records. So uh, that's where it becomes a little more difficult. Other times, you, the, the, the records uh, are arranged chronological. And that creates a problem as well. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's the Freedmen's Bureau records, although they have a, a gold mine of information in them, they're very difficult to navigate. But these are some of the first records probably one might want to take a look at if they decided to do some research in Freedmen's Bureau records because um, they, they are rich with names and other kinds of information. Right. They are definitely rich with names and, as you said, other kinds of information. And I know uh, for myself, I was helping another researcher, Leonard Smith, and he wanted me to look at in the Freedman Bureau records for uh, his ancestors in Lafouche Parish, mm -hmm. Louisiana. Well, the very next parish 
that was listed was Livingston Parish. And I mm -hmm. found my great great grandfather, his mother, and all of the siblings okay. on a labor contract. And so I think I, I reached out to you because they had class, class one and class two, and I wasn't quite sure yeah. what that meant. And so there's another piece of information that you may need to read, go into the uh, a circular to mm -hmm. where it can explain to you just how these labor contracts are structured and yeah. how they classified the people that are, are work. What's the, what's the difference in a class one and a class two? That was yeah. totally foreign to me. I didn't quite yeah. understand that. Yeah, you know, one of those classes were depended that was going to determine how much you were going to make. And when you look through some of those contracts, you'll see where the men might be making, you know, $6 and uh, the women might be making 3 and if there's youngsters, they might be making 2. So the class was broken down on how much you were being paid uh through that contract. And of course, there are other, you know, as I said, there there um sharecropping where they were paid um basically you know that's where sharecropping sort of began where they were paid a share of the crop and um certainly that's a, another means of how some of the the the, the contracts are arranged and the, the date the times that they worked whether they worked every all week whether they worked on saturday whether they worked a half day on saturday and other stipulations about leaving the the plantation without permission and sort of thing. So it gives you an idea of how much they were making, how how much were they getting, maybe half or a third of the crop as their share or something like that. But a lot of times we know about sharecroppers where by the end of the year when you finish, you almost owned, owed the slave owner or the owner, uh, you know, uh, enough, uh, not enough money, so you had to sign up to, to work for that person again the next year. But the labor contracts, I think in, when, you know, we did a lot of the, I uh, did a lot of the, the descriptive work for the, for the, for the, um, the pamphlets, descriptive pamphlets, and um, you'll find a lot of information where these contracts, you, you'll find them in almost every state, perhaps, perhaps except uh, uh, Texas. So there's a great deal of information there about people and the type of uh, life they led as, as they worked on those plantations. Right. One of the things also is that those uh, the Freeman Bureau records included a lot of marriage license. At least I, I saw yes. them in some of the records oh, yes. that I looked at. Yes. We um, when we went to to embark on filming the uh, filming and. Uh, uh, microfilming those records, we there was a a, a body of uh, marriage records up at the headquarters level, and we took those because they were never filmed, and they were some of the more uh, uh, frequently asked for records. So, as part of the uh, project to film these field office records, we also filled these filmed these marriage records that were left at the headquarters, and uh, there are some fascinating records because number one. You can find in a, a number of cases where they are actually identifying how they were married as slaves and uh, when they were married as slaves, although the Bureau might be uh, issuing them a license or a certificate in 1866. Uh, some, a number of those people were, they were saying, well, I was married in 1843. I was married in 1856. 
I was married in 1821. So it's a it's a great find if you find a marriage license or a marriage certificate where a person actually is giving you the the date that they actually married as slaves. We know that slaves couldn't legally marry, but they would go to the owner and say, we want to be married. So they would just move into a house together and they would be considered married. Sometimes they would have a ceremony, sometimes they wouldn't. And uh, but but they are some fascinating records, and they were certainly uh, some of the most requested records when before they had been filmed, and, and we were able to film them as a result of the Freedmen's Bureau Preservation Project. Right. Well, also in addition to the marriage records, what about just the the registration, the the register of of the colored people? I mean, I even saw yeah. that in in a group of records that I, I read. Which, right. again, as you said, it, it it gave us an opportunity to find the people that were. Um, Excuse me, I'm being told there's a, a echo. I'm not sure what's going on. But anyway, uh, it does give us an opportunity to see where people were right after the Civil War exactly. by looking at that whole that whole registration. Right. Like, right. you know, just like you were saying in Mississippi and Louisiana, particularly Louisiana, there were a lot of records relating to people, you know, a lot of times what happened was the Bureau when the when the military came into the to the area during the Civil War, uh, a lot of the former slaves would be leaving the plantation, and a lot of the owners who were had Confederate sympathies would move further south and abandon the plantations because the Freedmen's Bureau is actually called the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, and these they put the slaves to work on these plantations, and part of the process once they leased the plantation, either uh, to some of the people who were coming north from from the north to to lease the plantations, um, they would do inspections of these plantations, and there some of these registers in, in those records are referred to as uh, um, plantation registers, and they identify all the people working on that plantation. And of course, in some cases, uh, when Andrew Johnson issued his uh, uh, a proclamation to return the plantations back to the owners, and the owners had to come forward and you know say they owned the property and so forth and so on. Some of these plantations you'll find these registers where you see these people uh, listed there, these former slaves. Uh, the, they are working again for the same slave owner, but in this case they're either being paid or they're getting a share of the crop. So those registers are very important, and the Bureau had an entity within their, their structure where they actually uh, did these inspections, and, and during these inspections, they recorded all the people that were there, particularly in Mississippi and Louisiana. Yes, but, you know, I've looked at some of the inspections also, and they mm -hmm. spoke more about the crops and right. uh, the the status of the what was happening, looking more at the agricultural component of what right. was going on, right. rather right. than whether the lives of the former slaves had changed. And it's almost like they went back into slavery, and the concern was more about the crops. Right. You know, you you it's funny you mentioned that. You find that you know when you read some of the contracts and some of the requirements of the slaves. 
uh, with the former slaves, you 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 wonder. See, and the bureau was their responsibility that was to quote unquote make the contracts equitable equitable to both parties. But sometimes you look through those records and they they weren't necessarily equitable. A lot of the slave, you know, former slaves had to uh, deal with conditions that they left the plantation. Uh, they wouldn't be able, they couldn't leave without permission and all these kinds of things. So, and, and of course, they were because um, a lot of the people who were leasing the plantations had to pay monies to lease the plantation. Because when the Freedmen's Bureau first started, the first year, you know, they they didn't have... Congress didn't appropriate any money. The Bureau would make their money off the fees that they would charge the uh, the people who were leasing the property or so forth. Uh, that's how they were able to carry out some of their projects, some of their uh, activities. So certainly that made them more interested in how the crop was going and so forth. And that's, that's one of the things uh, uh, I'm glad you pointed out. Right. Also, uh, another, and, and you actually mentioned this in your paper, it's about mm -hmm. transportation. Right. And uh, how transportation was provided to some of the uh, refugees to exactly. hopefully get back and reunite with their family members. Exactly. Did you exactly. see a lot of those uh, types of documentations in the uh, records <laughs> that you looked at? Yes, I did find a, a lot of those, and I, I think Selma Stewart would be interested in it. She might know about it. It was a guy named Hawkins, Hawkins Wilson, and he was sold away 20 years before the war, to, and uh, he was sold down to um, Houston, Texas. I think it's Houston, Texas. Galveston, Texas, I'm sorry. And he was writing. He wasn't writing. He had become a sexton uh, at, at, at a particular church. And he went to the local bureau office there in Galveston to get some help to get back up here to Maryland so that he could reunite with his uh, his relatives. And he named when he, uh, he, I believe he wrote the letter himself because he had gotten a little education and so forth. And he got the assistance from the bureau and he was trying to get back up here to his family. And he was identifying all his family members and a number of the family members, he identified who owned them. Sometimes they were owned by different people, and he gave their names and so forth. And he made a, a remarkable request. You know, he said, uh, tell one of his sisters to send him some hair or something. I don't know why. Maybe she had long <laughs> hair or whatever. But it was very uh -huh. fascinating to see how these people were trying to get back to their loved ones who had been sold away. And a lot of them were trying to get transportation through the Bureau. And a lot of times I know there there are examples where somebody, uh, one particular example where some people were uh, uh, trying to get to Philadelphia to reunite with their mother. Now, I don't know how the mother got there, but uh, they were trying to reunite with the mother, and they went through the Bureau to get transportation to get up to Philadelphia. So, um, you know, if somebody's parent, if that had been someone's relative and in, in the family history or the family lore that somebody was living in Philly, then you might you might realize that the bureau assisted them to get there. 
Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something definitely for individuals to look into. Well, Reggie, oh we're going to take a quick break and then come back okay. and continue to talk about the, okay. the records. The next group we'll talk about will be the Freedmen Savings and Trust Company. So just okay. a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Reginald Washington discuss the records of post-Civil War federal agencies at the National Archives. And Reginald, before we talk about the uh, savings bank, I have a question coming out of the chat. Did okay. the Bureau fund the journey? We were mentioning the transportation, but did the Bureau fund the journey? And would it have been a journey by train? Uh, yes, indeed. The Bureau did do, do the funding. And a lot of times it was by train. Uh, as I said, the Bureau, particularly in D.C., they were re they would set up these um what they call these uh, uh, employment stations throughout the north. And some of the uh, people they would send there to um, work with a family or something, whether it was in New, New England or New York or Philadelphia, and the Bureau would provide the transportation. So they would make an, sort of like an application for the transportation through their local uh, Bureau official and it would be signed off on either by the state assistant commissioners for the bureau or it would be signed off by the the headquarters in Washington DC so people were being uh transported uh sometimes to be employed further up north or either trying to reunite with family members or looking for occupation throughout the South in certain areas, particularly where they might pay more money to work on some in some plantations in, let's say, Mississippi, and pay more money so other people would um, be trying to get uh, uh, transportation to, to, to make it to some of these areas where they can make more money. 
Okay. Okay. And we actually have a caller online. Uh, would you like to uh, ask yes. a question or make a comment? You're live. Hello? Yes, you're live. I'm sorry. I didn't know you could hear me. I firstly want to say hello to you all and let you know that I'm really enjoying the show. And I have a question for Mr. Washington. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Mr. Washington, are you familiar with Professor Saviola Glimp? Um, no, I'm not familiar with him. I, uh, where Where is he from? She. 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 Um, oh, I'm sorry. Univer- I'm sorry. University of North Carolina. And she lectures uh, intensely on black women and children during and post Civil War era, and she speaks about. And I was, I was the reason I asked you because I wanted to know were you familiar with her book Out of the House of Bondage, because my question runs parallel to that. She lectures, and in her book, she alludes to the fact that many black women and their children um, were massacred at some of these internment camps because they would okay. follow the they would follow the military because they had been turned out from the um from the plantations and they would follow the military and there was just much carnage that went on. I'd like to know if you have seen any records that testify to that and can you please tell me if you haven't, sir, can you tell me what you do know about single women and their children during that era? Right. What the, what they did when the military came through, they would they would set up what we call contraband camps, and many of the people in those contraband camps were were women and children and older individuals. These these contraband camps were always uh, also used as a uh, a means to uh, when some of the younger men who were military age they could uh, in you know draft not necessarily draft them into the service but recruit black soldiers from those camps to um work in the uh, uh to 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 join the military now i haven't personally ran across any records where they talked about massacres of individuals um at at certain camps uh perhaps uh the the professor that you referring to may have found found something like that in Freedmans bureau but i can't I, i've never seen anything like that in any of the bureau records, but I do know many of those contraband camps did. Uh, most of the people there were women and children, and 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 older people, and and sometimes they had persons there who were, who were military age who could probably go into the military, and you know that may have happened, but I, I haven't seen anything like that in Freedmen's Bureau records. There's other records at the National Archives, you know, the early the. The, the the earlier military records, the actual military records, as I mentioned in in opening, that the bureau was was established in the War Department. So the bureau was actually some of the things that they were doing. They took over from the military and continued that sort of activity on, like labor contracts and other sort of things, uh, setting up dispensaries and so forth. But I've never seen anything in there uh, referring to any massacres at all. Not to say that they, uh, you know, haven't looked at every record. So, to answer your question, I'm not aware of. It. Now, um, if she wrote a book, she may uh, have given some citations about where this occurred, and that might be an opportunity for you, uh, who might be doing research in that area, 
if she has some citations that cite the Bureau or other record groups like Record Group 94, which is the Adjutant General's records, the military commands, and, and some of those areas, it might be some information in there. But I haven't seen anything like that in Freeman's Bureau records. Right. And caller, we, we do have uh, someone wanting to know the name of the book. Okay, I'll give that to you right now. Uh, okay. The title of the book is Out of the House of Bondage. Out of the House of Bondage. That's Saviola, T-H-A-V-O-L-I-A, Glimp, G-L-Y-M-P-H, Cambridge University Press, 2008. And yes, she does cite, yes, she does give um, the various agencies. Do you have the book right there? You have the book with you? I don't have it in front of me. Oh, I was okay. listening to you guys, and I'm so I'm, I don't want to move because I don't want to miss anything. Right, because you know if but, she if she okay. Right, yeah. and we'll just we'll make this another show. I mean, I'll talk. Right. I'll reach out to her so that she can come on and and be a guest on the show. So yeah. let's talk about the records of the Freedmen Savings and Trust Company. Give us some background information, and then tell us about the depositors and what types of information would we find in right. those records. I'll tell you, that's another gold mine because those records, you could go to a, a one-stop sh shop store. It, you know, it might not have some of the labor-type information, but it does identify people. One of the things, well, let me just say, the, the Freedmen's Bank was established in March 3rd, 1865, too, and Congress... Um, issued its charter. It started out primarily as a, a simple savings bank for former slaves. Uh, during the war, of course, and you, we know about the U.S. colored troops, uh, well, when they were serving, they were, uh, you know, when they got paid, people were swindling them out of their money, so a few generals, um, Saxton and uh, Nathaniel Banks and others, set up these banks so that the soldiers would have a safe place to save their money. So that sort of evolved into a group of people getting together, deciding, you know, people of financial background and so forth, decided to open up the Freedman's Bank or the Freedman Savings and Trust Company. So uh, they, opened up the <coughs> they opened up the banks. As I said, it was a simple savings bank to begin with. Uh, it began in uh, 1865, March 3rd, 1865, and there were about 37 branches in 17 different states. And the National Archives has records for 29 of the branches. And uh, some of the other records, um, you know, we don't know what happened to some of the other records, but uh, there are what we call signatures of depositors. And these, these records actually identify the person who's opening up the account, uh, when they open it, if they, some of the early part of the records, it would include the name of, you know, if they had a slave owner, they would have that, some of the early parts of the records. And they would uh, uh, give information about the person themselves, you know, what kind of employment were they in, uh, who were their parents. Uh, who were their brothers and sisters, and so forth, and they will list all these people. Now, Family Search obviously has at their uh, website. I think you can access. Uh, you can do a name search 
in the records. And, of course, it will provide you that information. But it's a wealth of information. It even come to, sometimes you'll find even the names of the uncles and, and, and other people as well. But the bank, um, as I said, they had 37 branches in 17 states. Of course, over time, they in 1870, they the the bank officials they had 50 trustees, and most of these people were white. And of course, they uh, changed the charter of the bank to start making loans and investing in real estate. So the bank ran into a lot of fraud and other things going on, and the bank closed in uh, 1874. But there were, you know, some authors have said that there was at least during that time period, that nine-year time period from 1865 to 74, there were more than uh, uh, 50 dollars that went through that bank. So you can see how, how important that was. But it, 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 it lets you know that the people uh, had a mindset to save money. And, of course, um, you know, the bank collapsed, and I think later they started uh, giving dividends uh, uh, to repay the people, and they got about 62% of what they were actually owed. And there were efforts later to try to get them the other 38%, but nothing materialized, and a lot of the uh, people who could least afford uh, lost their money, weren't paid anything. Right. Yes, which is very unfortunate. You know, one yeah. of the things that I noticed in the... Um, and this paper that you, this reference information paper, is that you, you did list all of the bank branches. Yeah. And I think this is very helpful to people that are searching and wanting to know just where were the Freedmen's Bank branches located. Oh, they were all over the country. They had a, the the headquarters was in New York. It eventually moved, I think, in 1867 to D.C. And I just attended a program uh, last week down at the archives where there was this uh, quote-unquote commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the bank. And if you're ever in the area around the White House, right there across uh, uh, from the Treasury Department, there's a Treasury Annex, and you'll see a plaque on the wall basically saying this is where the Freedmen's Bank was because when they moved to D.C., they they um, opened up a headquarters that eventually wound up right there in in the area of the White House and and uh, where that Treasury Annex is and they they have a plaque there identifying it and um, go ahead go, you you go ahead oh, oh okay yeah so they do have a plaque there and uh, as I said the bank you know went under and. Uh, 1874, and just before it went under, they, they got Frederick Douglass, unbeknownst to him, that the bank was on its way out, down, but they got him to invest $10,000 of his own money, but I think it, he eventually got it back. But out at college, out at our facility in College Park, you know, I said we have these signatures of depositors that list all this personal information about the individuals who open up accounts, but out in College Park, uh, you know, you'll find some other kinds of administrative records. And, of course, people were issued passbooks. So there are passbooks out there at College Park. I think Lessis, Nexus, I think they may have microfilmed some of the passbooks and some of the correspondence. 
but also one of the valuable records out there are what we call the questionnaires. When the bank failed, people had to send their passbooks to Washington to show that they indeed had an account in the bank. And uh, some of the former slaves, you know, certainly they didn't have their money or lost their passbooks, but if they had money, if they had a passbook, they might have sold it to someone else to get, so that they could get some immediate money and someone else, um, you know, went to uh, uh, try to collect the money from the federal government. But the questionnaires, uh, if you didn't have a passbook, you had to send in a questionnaire with the same information that the person who opened the account provided, you know, the names of children, the names of parents, the names of, uh, 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 of, 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 of slave owners or something like that. And you'll find these questionnaires are very valuable for two reasons. Number one, they they might identify that the original owner of the account died and you get an actual date of birth and a, a son is trying to get the money or a wife or something like that and the other thing is that some of the some of those other banks remember I, they they had 29 branches the national archives has 29 branches there were 37 some of those branches that we don't have records for people are sending in questionnaires so uh, uh, if there wasn't a bank in your area, one of those seven banks that, you know, one of those banks that didn't survive, but in the questionnaires you're finding the same information for the banks that the National Archives doesn't have records for, uh, a signature or deposit records. Wow, this is wonderful, wonderful. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat, and I just want to mention um, okay. the mapping of Freedman Bureau dot com dash Freedman Savings is available. It was developed by Angela Walton Raji and also uh, Low Country Africanas, a part of this too, Tony Carrier. But the questions, and there are two, what percentage of the account holders actually submitted data to reclaim some of their funds? And the second part of that question is, can the questionnaires be researched by the public? Yes. They're available to the public. Uh, first of all, you know, not all. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly the percentage of the um, persons who were able to get money. I know that when when the bank failed, the depositors, whatever, what was left in the bank was about you know three million dollars. So in the day's time, that would be a whole bunch of money. And you know, anyone who was able to send their passbook in or identify the fact that they had had an account in the bank, either through a questionnaire or whatever, those were the people who were paid. Now, what what they also have out there are dividend payment registers. So let's say, for example, you were uh, researching the bank in Louisiana or whatever the, the bank office may have been. It will indicate there might be a register for that particular bank, and it, and it'll have the various uh, account numbers and so forth, and see if the persons actually got paid any monies. And I think over time, between 1875 to about 1880 or so, they issued about five dividend payments, and uh, uh, these dividend payment registers. Are out there and, I, and they're not on microfilm either. You have to look at those in the original forms as well as the the uh, questionnaires. So, how many percentage of those people? I can't tell you right offhand. I, I don't remember. It might be, um, 
now I wouldn't want to make a guess as well, but some of the people didn't get any money because they couldn't prove that they had monies in the bank. And uh, so uh, I know that a, a number of people lost their money. Not only were individuals opening up accounts, there was these help, help, self, help, self-help agent, uh, 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 entities that were established to help blacks. In other words, there, uh, there were also other organizations and churches who opened up an account because they encouraged the individuals to open accounts, so they lost their money too. And a lot of these organizations were helping the former slaves adjust to freedom, and they lost money as well. So it was a, it was a double shot for uh, persons, those former slaves who had money in the bank, and it was unfortunate. But the federal government uh, was supposed to check the books, keep a rec- you know, you know, check the books periodically, but they never did. And when people uh, tried to get them to give them uh, the rest of the money, the 38% that they, that, that, that they didn't get, but uh, to no avail, uh, Congress felt they had done enough. Right. And although I think the question may have been answered, there's a question Mm -hmm. in the chat. What is the record group for these questionnaires or what would one ask for? Oh, you know what? (laughs) That's record group. uh, What is that? Record group 101. Right. And this is the response that was put in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Record Record group group 101. 101. Yes. And all of these are on microfilm at archives too. Yeah, the the signature of deposits are on 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 microfilm. They also have some indexes to um they have some indexes. I think the the signature of the deposits are M816 and they had some indexes, you know, listing the people who had accounts in the bank and so forth and I, I believe that's this M817. Now uh, these index become important because particularly if we don't have signature records, it does indicate the the indexes will indicate who had an account. Let's say we might have the signature records where the people list information about themselves for a particular bank, but we might not have those, but we might have the indexes to those, to that particular branch. So it does identify people who had accounts. So if your person, let's say, was from uh, a particular uh, a state where they had indexes. You could look to see if they indeed got an account. Then you might have a clue as to where you might look through the um, the actual uh, questionnaires to see if those people wrote in later to try to get monies from the bank or get these dividend payments. And uh, you might find that same information you would find in a signature uh, of depositors. Right, right. Okay, and I don't know if we we don't. It doesn't look like we have any more questions regarding okay. the Friedman savings. So okay. let's move on to the claims, the okay. claims commission, and let's talk okay. about that for a minute. The records okay. of the commissioners of claims. Yeah, yeah. Now it's it, it's it's the records of the commissioner of claims, but it's uh, uh, properly known as the free uh, the Southern Claims Commission. And what the Southern Claims Commission was, it was an entity established by Congress in, um, in 18, 1871. And it was a, 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 the whole goal of that commission was to compensate people who had property taken from them 
during the Civil War. In other words, when the military came into these areas during the Civil War and they needed, you know, whether it was food or, or, or agriculture or some sort of uh, subsistence types of things, uh, they would get that from the uh, from the people working on the plantation or or the plantation owners. And uh, the, in 1871, they set up the commission where people could be compensated for stuff that they had provided to the military. Now, you had to come and make a claim. Now, what the interesting thing about that is uh, we had former slaves and free blacks who filed claims before the commission. And one of the first things you want to ask yourself is, uh, well, how could they file claims? Well, you know, in some areas of the South, particularly in Georgia and South Carolina, they worked on a different system, different labor system. It's called the TAS system. And that was a system established in that area by the slave owner and uh, the, the, the actual slaves where they've assigned the, the slaves a particular task at the beginning of the day. And once they completed that task, the commissioner, I mean, the um, actual slave owner would allow them to raise their own little gardens uh, and they would allow them to sell these things. And with the monies they bought, they, they got from the sale of the stuff they uh, had had raised in the gardens, they bought chickens and so forth. Then maybe they made enough money over time to buy a wagon and other stuff. So when the military came into these areas, they not only took the uh, those kinds of things from the um, plantation owners, they would take it from the former slaves as well. And certainly you'll find information where former slaves are coming forward uh, to say they had this property, and they would explain it to the uh, commissioners, and uh, the commissioners knew that kind of system was in place, so they would look at their claim, and, and some of them claims were allowed and some were disallowed. A claim could be allowed, disallowed, or barred. And in the claim, you know, you had to bring witnesses, and a lot of these people who brought witnesses were bringing their relatives, so it identifies their relatives. Uh, um, it tells how these people were able to gain this money. Some of these people were, you speaking of women, they were washerwomen. Uh, some of them did other things. They were sewing and doing sort of things. People were, um, you know, I said, working on the task system. Some of the people were allowed to, um, uh, were were able to um, buy their time for their owner. And 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 this was a, a another system where they would go and work for someone else and make make a certain amount of money, and they would get permission from their owner and split some of the money with the owners and keep some for themselves. And we we think of slaves, you know, just people who just worked and worked in the field, but they were uh, they could be entrepreneurs as well. And you'll find a lot of that information in every instance that I've seen those records, and I've been through a lot of them because that was one of the first articles I wrote for Prologue. Uh, in every instance where a former slave came forward, he named who his owner was. And keep in mind that although slaves were filing claims, they, their owners were filing claims too. So you, you can look, once you find the, the owner there, you can go and look and see if the, the actual owner filed a claim as well. And then you'll find additional information about the owner. And we know uh, uh, when you, you're doing African-American research and your persons were former slaves, you need to know as much about the slave-owning family as you do your own family. And you'll find some fascinating information in there 
about how uh, uh, they uh, were, you know, you might even find out where they were, where they actually purchased the slave or information about when they acquired them, whether it was from some sort of, um, you know, uh, inheritance or whatever. So they're very, very fascinating. Those are some of my uh, favorite records. Well, you know what I like about those records? When the former slaves were brought in to testify mm-hmm. against the owner. Right, exactly. And they would tell the truth. They, <laughs> they would, would tell definitely... the truth. But you know, it, the, the, the nice thing about that is, just think about it. The slave put all the food in the barn. They, 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 they knew the horses and the cows by name. So they knew whether, uh, and, and I should have mentioned this from the beginning, that a person who had who filed a claim had to prove number one that they owned the property, and number two they had to prove that they remained loyal to the federal government throughout the war. So the slave, the the, the commissioners when they came in to investigate to to see if these claims were legit, they they relied on the slaves, the former slaves, to uh, uh, provide the information because they knew everything. They knew whether they had the what they had in the barn, how many horses they had, because they were the ones working in the field. So that's another fascinating part of the the, the whole process of these claim records. But but the testimony, uh, it, that's the key information, and and it's and it's fascinating. It I'll is fascinating. Yes. Right. Now, there are two questions coming out of the chat. Okay. Was there another sure. set of records called slave claims? Or is it the same as the Southern Claims Commission? Slave claims. No. Now, th- there were some. Uh, there's some other records in the military. I would think they. I think they're um, quartermaster records. You know, record group 92, slave claims, and um, I think they were for for. Uh, well, there were some. Well, I, I'm trying to remember. You know, I worked with those records. Not not a great deal, but I, I I know what you're talking about, and I'm not sure, but perhaps down at the military branch at the National Archives, they could speak more to that. I haven't worked with those records over long. I knew about them, but I don't know a whole lot about them. But they're right. very interesting and form. But they don't have the the same kind of testimony that uh, that the that the Southern Claims records have. Yes. Well, give us an example of a a Southern claim. I think at one point you did look into some church, church members uh, filing claims. Tell us about that. Now, this this was more so now the the Southern Claims Commission was pretty much a a claims for, uh, you know, food and, you know, things of that nature, horses and so forth. But later on, people would, you know, there were a lot of churches that uh, the military occupied when they came through the South. And a lot of these churches weren't able to file a claim until 1887. Now, it wasn't with the Southern Claims Commission. It was with, with the, the Court of Claims. And, of course, uh, I, I did an article back in uh, for NGSQ, that's the National uh, Genealogical Quarterly, and it talked about... Um, uh, a particular church that filed that actually petitioned Congress, and they wanted to get compensated for their church being buried down by Sherman when he left Atlanta. And in that petition, it listed 234 members of the church. I'm talking about 234 members. It listed the pastor, the trustees, 
the exhorters, the the teachers, and all the other slaves. And you know, of course, in between their names, there were X. So, but it was a fascinating article. And one of the things I wanted to find out of whether they got paid. Make a long story short, they didn't get paid. But I was able to find out my 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 three questions I asked was number one, did they get paid? Uh, did they rebuild the church that they burnt down, and did the church exist today? And to make a long story short, I went through a process and talked about records they could use to find how you could find that information because there were a lot of African American churches, AME churches, Baptist churches that were filing claims uh, with the court of claims to get uh, compensated for either the the um, Army using their church as a headquarters or a hospital or taking the the uh, the, the 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 wood to make fire or something like that. But it's a lot of those churches in there that are making claims. This particular church, I was able to find out, it's Big Bethel in Atlanta, and um, you know it's a it's a fascinating process and a fascinating story. If you ever get a chance to look at the, I think it's the March. Uh, 2013 issue of uh, NGSQ, and it's in the um, uh, what's it? Uh, what's it? I forgot what they call it. Documents or something, but it's in that particular issue. But this wasn't the Southern Claims. It, this was a little after the Southern Claims Commission because uh, a lot of churches were trying to file before the Southern Claims Commission, but 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 that wasn't their jurisdiction at the time. Not until Congress passed laws under the Tucker Act in 1887 where these these churches and other institutions that were destroyed or used as headquarters were able to file claims. Those are some fascinating records, too. And, you know, there are Southern Claims records in the Court of Claims because if the Southern Claims Commission denied the claim of some of those people who were filing before it, that included blacks as well and, and the plantation owners, they would, could... Um, uh, filed a claim against the court of claims when it came under the jurisdiction of you know what the what what the Southern Claims Commission didn't do, and uh, you'll find some of the Southern Claims files uh, in the court of claims records being reviewed for uh, compensation that they couldn't get from the Southern Claims Commission. Right, right. So you we have all kinds of opportunities, it sounds like, to really oh, find yeah. your ancestors. Just go to these various uh, documents and right. just start digging, basically. Now, there's right. some comments coming out of the chat, and I want to okay. just re okay. review some of them for you. One okay. comment is that it seems like there aren't as many records for North Carolina. And Karen, uh, who's put this uh, comment in, said that she read somewhere that the locals were not as cooperative or compliant with the Freedmen's Bureau. Is this true? It's possible that some of the locals wouldn't comply with it because, first of all, you remember, I, you know, in terms of people filing the claims before the commission, first of all, they had to prove that they owned the property. And secondly, they had to prove that they had remained loyal to the federal government. Now, it was difficult for a number of people to prove that they, you know, you in this covered the southern states, all those southern states, all those uh, states in rebellion. So it was difficult to prove if it was if you couldn't prove that you owned the property. And one of the other things that they did um, 
keep in mind that the the federal government, when the war closed, the federal government had captured the Confederate archives. So when a person came to file a claim before the commission, they would cross-reference in the Confederate archives to see if these people had any contact with the Confederate Army, whether they supplied slaves, whether they supplied goods to the Confederate Army. So your claim would not be allowed. You, it was dead in the war if you had some Confederate sympathies or something of that nature. So keep in mind, you know, maybe people didn't, I, I'm not sure about North Carolina. I remember, you know, I did the all the DPs from all of the DPs North Carolina, I can't remember everything about what North Carolina was doing, but um, I'm not sure it, it might have been because they had Confederate sympathies and they knew that the claim wouldn't go anywhere, uh, so they didn't bother with it. And, and you know, uh, a lot of the people, uh, you know, we, we were talking about the Freedmen's Bureau of Southern Claims or whatever. I think we... What was yes, we were talking was, about, it went back to the Freedmen Bureau, yes. Oh, Freedmen's Bureau, right. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of whites, they avoided the Freedmen's Bureau. And, you know, you know, when you're enslaved and, um, you know, you've been under the the control of these white slave owners, they would, they would, they would tell some of the slaves that, you know, they're going to put you back in slavery. And, and also... You know, let keep in mind that this, the 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 bureau was under the War Department, and they had to enforce the the rules and the laws. They used the military, so I, there have been instances where I've seen in there where the slave owners would tell them, "Look, when this army leaves, you ain't gonna be in, if you you know get involved with them, things aren't gonna go for, real well for you when they leave." <laughs> so a lot of people did avoid it for that very reason. So that could have been one case there. Uh, you know, that could have been one reason they didn't get involved with them. And, of course, the whites wouldn't get involved because they, they, they had Confederate sympathies. If you had if you had um, persons who served in the Confederate Army, they could forget about their claim getting uh, uh, approved. If you, if you had any sympathies with the Confederacy, that was a death knell to your claim. And, as I said, some of the slaves might avoid it because they felt that you know, they might be when the military leaves or the Freedmen's Bureau shuts down, then where are we going to go? What are we going to do? We still have to live here. So we have to be careful how we do things. Certainly. Now, there's a comment, and it, it really relates to the NGS. That, okay. Uh, there's an, uh, uh, Angela noticed that there are two sessions at the NGS. One is on Southern Claims. Okay. And another okay. is called slave claims. We're, we're, are we're, these we're, two or are they different? They're different. Now, well, we're 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 uh, just Angela. I got that. I got that little program thing right here before me. Does she have what page that's on? And who's giving Angela, the lecture? Angela, what page is it on? <laughs> in the in the brochure. Does she yeah. have the brochure? I'm I'm waiting for her to respond to me. Okay, it's probably yes. on Saturday anyway. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you're commission. saying that yeah. they are different. Yes, right. they are different. Oh, they are, they are different because their claims, oh, that's what it is. Oh, yeah, I know. I let, Now you jog my memory. Those claims are for basically their slave owners who are being compensated for their, their, um, 
their slaves who went into the military. And these are actually the border states. And they're compensating the owners for their, you know, let's say if their slave joined the military. So they, you know, keep in mind that these were the border states. These weren't the states in rebellion. So uh, what these slave claims are, are compensation for, uh, you know, for these um, loyal, quote-unquote, loyal slave owners. They were loyal in the sense that they were the border states. Of course, the border states weren't in rebellion against the government. So if their slave went into the service, they would come forward and uh, seek compensation for the government. They could probably receive as much as $300. So, but they, they, had, to come and, they had to come and uh, provide information about them, you know, that they indeed owned the slave owner. And what makes them pretty interesting is that they might bring a bill, uh, a bill of sales to say, yeah, see, I'm the owner of this slave, and here's the bill of sales where I purchased them. So we know how important that is. So, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, some of them, I've even seen uh, insurance documentation in where they insured the slave with, with an insurance company. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, when they're coming forward to uh, uh, prove to the government that this slave who joined the military is mine or was mine, I have an insurance document that proves it. I have a bill of sales that proves it. So those are great documents for us. If you're, you you notice the, the, the states that we're talking about, it's those states like Maryland and Delaware and Missouri and Kentucky that were, 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 weren't in rebellion against the government. So they wanted to compensate uh-huh. those owners, just like they wanted to appease them when they did the Emancipation Proclamation. Right, you know, they, they right. excluded them from the Emancipation Proclamation, and those people, mm-hmm. when the when the proclamation, you know, of course, they were still enslaved. Right. So that's what that well, is. I, I, it comes, it comes back is. to me now. Okay, yeah, you got it. Right. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. well, Reginald, we are close to the end of the show, and I just okay. want to thank you so much for coming yeah. on tonight to just share with us uh, information about these three agencies and the value of those records. Do you have any closing remarks for us? Well, I just want to encourage those listeners who who uh, uh, who tuned in to you know, get busy uh, with their um, with their with their genealogical research because you know things are changing now. And Angela and and Selma and and yourself, Bernice, you guys are out there now having radio blogs. We didn't have those when we first started. We didn't have all these um, African American groups and these websites and you know mapping the Freedmen's Bureau and all those things. So you guys, they, they, you're doing a fantastic job. You're taking things to another level now. So I just commend you guys for doing that work, and I can uh, and I would encourage those listeners who are, you know, just getting started, be encouraged because Angela and and Bernice and all them, they were they were newbies just like you are, and they. Uh, see how far they've come and how far they, but 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 always think about giving back, you know, giving back, giving back. Like like you, Bernice, with your radio blog, you're giving back. You're bringing in speakers to talk about all these records. Uh, 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 Angela and and her group are uh, mapping Freedmen's Bureau records, so you make sure where these bureau offices were and. And, and people are doing a lot of other things, all these groups. So I just want to encourage you guys to keep up the good work. 
and I appreciate you taking you know time to listen to whatever I might have to say and uh, just just keep keep going keep moving okay and thank you okay. so very much Reginald okay. and we look forward to seeing you on the speaking circuit and yeah, I just be... want to just say yes yeah. say yeah. that Karen Galloway is putting out indexing folks get involved in the various indexing projects i mean that's the only way that we're going to really get people to look at these records if you start indexing these records and using them so exactly. that's what it's all about so thank you so much for okay all right thank yeah, you for thank having you me so much okay and right. so uh, Good evening, everyone, and uh, just thank you so much, Reginald Washington. And remember, okay. everybody, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and beyond blog talk radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexandra Bennett. Good night, everyone.